Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 47 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And take a moment, if you can, rate and review us. Give us a five-star review if you're already a fan of the show. Type a couple sentences about why you like it. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the podcast, go ahead and share it with them. Let's see if we can grow the audience. Man, today is the first day of my two-week vacation from work and school. Uh, I finished all my obligations for school yesterday, had a final presentation in my communications class, which I did very well on, and today is my first day off. Woke up, went for a long... Dude, I slept for like 11 hours last night. That's fucking crazy. I remember it was like 9 o'clock, me and my girlfriend had gotten takeout, which I think was only, you know, since shelter in place, I think this was the second time we had gotten food from a restaurant instead of making it ourselves. Um, She moved to a new place uh, within the last month, and there's a Thai place right around the corner, so we got some Thai food. And after doing the dishes, it was like 9 o'clock, and we laid down and we played a game of chess. And then I said, babe, I got like an episode or two of The Simpsons in me, and then I got to go to bed. So we watched two episodes of The Simpsons, and then, we, but then we started poking around on Disney Plus, and we watched a bunch of these. Uh, we probably watched like three or four of the of the uh, Pixar shorts. Actually, I don't know if they're Pixar. Actually, well, they probably are if they're Disney. But um, we watched a couple of those, and then we ended up watching like half of Wall-E. So I was fully prepared to go to bed at uh, at like ten o'clock or so, but I think we ended up staying up till like twelve thirty or something, and. Uh, I was up a few times in the night, but we didn't get out of bed till 1130, which is fucking crazy. And uh, I think within a half hour, though, we were both up. Actually, we made breakfast. I forgot about that. I did make some eggs for us. And then we went for like a six-mile walk. We walked uh, through her neighborhood out to the uh, uh, one of the marinas out here in the Bay Area, walked around a park that's nearby. And uh, yeah, got some good exercise. It was nice to be physically active, especially the last two weeks I haven't been. Uh, we uh, went to our old grocery store that we used to go to all the time, which was nice. I was saying there's this uh, new place. I don't know. I, I'm trying not to say specifics because I don't want anyone to fucking triangulate my location or whatever. But there's a very popular grocery store. Um, it's not a chain or anything. I just out here it's very popular where all the hippies go. It's not Whole Foods, but it's sort of Whole Foods adjacent. And it's... Um, there's one right around the corner of my girlfriend's new place. And so we've been going there, but I fucking hate it, man. It's so big. And you know, when you get in your zone with the grocery store, you kind of just like have your choreography. Like for me, it's like I do a lap around the perimeter because that's where all the, the, you know, the ostensibly healthy stuff is supposed to be, they say, is on the perimeter of the grocery store. And then you kind of go through the aisles for your fucking snacks or whatever it is. But it's like I had that shit down at our old grocery store. And I go to this new place and it's like, it's so cavernous. I don't know where anything is. Um, and I, the last couple of weeks we went there, I just felt like I left and I, and I, I would get home and unpack what I had and realize I didn't really have my groceries for the week. Do you know what I'm talking about? So we both kind of looked at each other and said, well, we definitely need to do grocery shopping, but we don't want to fucking go to the place, man. So let's just, let's just fucking bite the bullet and go back to our joint. So we did. And I got that good, good. I got that good, good grocery shopping in. And, uh, it was nice to be back. But, uh, then I realized your boy has to record the podcast. So back here doing that thing, and uh, this is probably the latest I've recorded it before it's due. It comes out at midnight, and it is 6.50 here. So I'm going to be wrapping it just about four hours before it's published, which is uh, a little close, but what can I say? It kind of had to go down that way. 
man, nice to sleep. Uh, the whole last week was pretty, uh, pretty rough for me. Um, and the truth is I'm feeling kind of sad. I had a job interview on Wednesday. I was telling you guys about it. It was coming up and I spent so much time preparing for it. Um, I had to give a 20 minute presentation as part of the interview. There was basically three parts. I had to give a 20 minute presentation. There was a round of, of questions, uh, like 10 or so questions. I think there were actually there. I think there were a few more actually. And then there was a role play. So, um, yeah, basically two of the shittiest things you had to do for an interview would be a role play and a presentation, right? And, a sp- you know, I don't know if this will make sense, but it's one thing when you are an external applicant and you apply for a job. Um, you know, you want it to go good, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't go bad, if it does go bad, you never have to see these people again. So, but when you're applying internally, when you're applying for a job inside the organization you're already employed at, and, you know, not only is the interview panel you know, uh, some of the directors of, of the company that hires you, sometimes your peers, they'll have like not, they'll have like a peer sort of sit in on the job interview process. And so when it doesn't go well, it fucking sucks. And if I think if they were being candid with me, I think the feedback would have been that it was actually not very good at all. But, um, you know, I start with this presentation and as I'm giving him, well, I guess I should say, I, I, I have to thank my brother too, but I prepared really fucking hard for the presentation. It's actually the only thing I focused on, um, which I think was a detriment. I think I should have prepared more or anticipated the questions more because even if I didn't know what they would be exactly, I bet I could have divined, um, kind of what they would encompass and I could have had some, uh, better answers prepared, but, uh, prepare my presentation and my brother, which was surprising to me, said he loves helping people prepare for presentations. And I guess it kind of comes off his experience where he had given a presentation that was fucking awful. And, um, you know, it was really disappointing for the time being. But um, he decided to just kind of bite the bullet and go on YouTube and kind of teach himself, you know, how to give a good presentation. So he had some very strong ideas about it. So I basically kind of showed him what I had sort of come up with. And we got together like three different times, twice for like an hour and then one time for like two hours. And the feedback he gave me was so good. It's so cool to see my brother who I've never, I don't normally see him in that kind of capacity. And just the feedback he was giving was so fucking great. And the fact that he was willing to, you know, give so much of his time to help me prepare for this was really, um, was really, um, yeah, it was a blessing. And, um, and God, I prepared so hard. I, I was so nervous about it. And then when it started, I'm giving the presentation and it's actually, as I'm giving it, it's the best it's ever gone. You know, like you rehearse these things a couple times. And as I'm giving it, I know my delivery is the, you know, the best I've practiced it. And yet, and yet, you know, I can't see their faces because I even have my slides in front of, you know, we had to do this remotely over Zoom, but I have the slides in front of Zoom so I don't see their faces. I can feel that it's just not landing well. Do you know what I mean? It's just not, I, I don't know. I'm just feeling it. And, um, and at the end, you know, they were, you know, they were nice to sort of couch some of their criticisms in, in praise. So I think there were things about it that they liked, but I think they really felt that I kind of missed the target of the prompt that they had uh, provided me with. And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know how the under, other interviews went. So, you know, I don't know if that was something that was particular to me, um, because, I mean, if, if a bunch of us messed up, then there was probably something wrong with the prompt. But if other people happened to hit it just right, and, and I was the one who was sort of aberrant, then, then that's one thing. But 
and I think it was, I think my, you know, my feeling as I'm sitting in this interview is it kind of just felt like a bad date, which is like, I could, out of the gate, I could tell my presentation didn't land well. And then they're hitting me with the questions. And I think I already know that this is not going to work out for me. And, um, yeah, I just felt kind of foggy. I, you know, there were some questions that they give you that, you know, you kind of nail. And then there are some times where someone will ask you a question and you don't really know where to go with it. So you just kind of start talking. And by the time you're done, the only feeling you have is, yep, that's the answer I gave. Yep. That's the answer I'm giving you. I'm done talking now. And they just kind of give you the nod like, well, okay. (laughs) And, uh, and then it's just time to move on. And, um, and then there was this role play, which as they're telling it to me, I, I'm sort of relieved uh, that it was, it was a pretty, it was kind of a relatively easy concept. But by that point, I don't even know how well executed it was. And, um, and when the interview ended, I just went, uh, you know, we said our goodbyes or whatever. And as soon as I clicked off of the, of the Zoom meeting, I just kind of stood up and kind of did a couple paces around my place and just, I was glad it was behind me. Um, you know, I did what I could, but I, I, I think if I just went from my gut, I'd say it was a six out of a 10 and maybe a generous seven, but uh, I was, I would not be at all surprised if I did not get the job. And, um, and I, I, you know, I reached out to a couple of people who are close to me. I reached out to my brother, uh, my girlfriend, and, you know, they were trying to be supportive and saying, you know, a lot of people, and my buddy, Matt, our MVP, he said the same thing. He said, he has always felt that way out of every interview um, he's walked out of. So that type of ambivalence is normal. But so I think I was skeptical. I was also trying to hold on to some, on to some optimism. And, uh, and then uh, I got a call the next morning from our director who said, uh, yeah, they've offered the job to somebody else. And, you know, I mean, I was, I was well composed in the call. I said, Oh, that, um, you know, thanks for the opportunity and the person they offered the job to, I, I know they're going to do a phenomenal job and, uh, I'm, I'm sure they picked the right person, but, um, I was actually surprised. I was actually a little emotional during the phone call and I was telling my girlfriend, I kind of, I was kind of getting a little, I mean, I don't think the person I was speaking with could hear this, but I could feel myself getting choked up a little bit. Um, I, and for a few reasons. I mean, obviously I was disappointed, but I think going into my vacation, especially, I think I really wanted to spend the next two weeks kind of psychologically preparing for this kind of shift at work. And the fact that I was, I think in that moment I realized, oh, I'm going to be spending the two weeks of my vacation kind of like, you know, preparing myself to go back to what I was doing before. And I don't think I realized how anxious I was or how eager I was to do something different until it was fucking certain that I was going back to the same thing. And, um, it kind of hit me hard for two seconds. And honestly, it sounds weird, but as soon as I got off the call, I had about five seconds and then I said, Oh, I have to, I have to go take a leak, frankly. And by the time I was done going to the bathroom, I, I was kind of over that emotional wave or whatever. But, I just, I mean, I had to work later that night. I had to work the next two nights, actually. And I just, I I realized it was really hitting me because there were so many things that went wrong on that shift and I just felt like I had no capacity to deal with them. You know, I just felt like my fuse was just fucking burnout. And, um, and yeah, it's been kind of sitting with me. I mean, I, I, you know, we slept till like 1130 today, but I woke up about 630 or 7 
And I was kind of laying there for 20 minutes. And the first thing I was thinking about was my disappointment with the job. Because I was actually, I was able to speak with my supervisor um, two days later. Right at the end of the week on Friday, actually. She actually got promoted. She got another job. So it was kind of our last uh, check-in with each other, our last supervision. And she was sitting in on the interview. So I just asked her, I said, can I get some feedback about you know what didn't work? And the thing that really hit me and kind of hurt me. I mean, it's, it, it, it is the case. I mean, there's nothing malicious about it. I just mean it, it stung me to hear this criticism was that she was kind of surprised at how, um, you know, it wasn't a catastrophe, but, it, you know, the she said it was basically between me and someone else. And it should have it should have really gone better than it did. And even she was kind of confused why I fell short in certain areas. She was surprised that I didn't come across as more confident. Um, and that really kind of bummed me out because in some ways I felt like it was mine. You know, I was the only one standing in my way. You know, if it was like, well, there's a seniority thing, there's this or that, and, you know, your interview was great, but there's this other consideration, whatever. I mean, that's disappointing also, but that's what these decisions are. They're multidimensional. But the fact that it was like, well, you probably could have stood a, stood a better shot if you would actually just kind of performed better, especially considering how much I prepared. I just, if I had just sort of walked in there and just kind of bombed it, that would have been one thing. But the fact that I prepared as much, I mean, I had an extension on my final school project. Um, I, re, I, you know, I, I changed some other things in my schedule around to sort of really make time for this and accommodate it. And um, so, yeah. You know, but I should have been more confident. I should have been more prepared with the questions. Or I should have anticipated the questions and had more answers prepared. And, yeah, it was just like a bad audition, you know? Like, I was telling my girlfriend, I can't remember what her thing was, but there's this thing, I mean, I've talked about it on the podcast, this idea of stage fright. Like, sometimes you're on stage and you, you know, I talk about in the first song and a half or so, you kind of feel the cart is shaking a little bit. And you have these moments where you feel like it could go off the rails, you know, but you have to like compose yourself and kind of push through so you can get to this place where you're very comfortable. And it was kind of like that with the presentation. I start and then there was, you know, I felt my nerves a little bit, but you kind of push through those and then you just kind of give what you've rehearsed, you know, and it was very comfortable. But it was like after I realized that wasn't landing and that I hadn't really knocked it out of the park with the presentation, it's like I never really found my footing and I could just kind of feel it, you know, like it's not, I'm not saying it's their responsibility to make me comfortable. That's not what it is. It's my job to come in prepared and give a good interview. I just think, you know, not that it's the same thing, but, you know, I gave a presentation yesterday for my communications class, my final presentation. It was a, you know, it was a 10 minute presentation that I had to give. And the feedback I, I got was like, wow, you were so confident. You're so casual. It was such a great delivery. And I was like, thank you. And I was like, why can't I bring the same thing to that interview? You know, I mean, I certainly tried, but it was like, after that first, you know, I'm thinking like a gymnast, gymnast's routine or something. I didn't stick the landing on the first part. It was like, it just wasn't working. And, and like I'm saying, it's not their job to make me comfortable, but I just, I felt like a date. I was sitting across from somebody who was just 
it wasn't working for them. And I, I think I just felt myself kind of getting more defeated, you know? And, um, yeah, it's just kind of embarrassing. I mean, I have to be fair to myself. I don't have a lot of experience giving a job interview. I not, I mean, not a real one. Do you know what I mean? Like I've worked in food service and I'm not trying to, um, make anyone feel bad, but you know, when you're interviewing for a, a you know, a leadership role or within a, you know, a agency or, or, or you, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a different, um, it's a different atmosphere. It's a different, uh, set. And I don't know, it's, it's frankly more competitive. Um, and I don't know, there's just a, there's a lot of responsibility that can fall to you. And, um, I mean, right now I'm taking a lot of the feedback. I mean, I actually, I, I emailed every person who was sat in on the interview and asked them for some feedback. And so I know, I know for a fact that some of them have responded, but because I'm on my vacation now, it's like I'm giving myself a couple of days to even look at it because I know I'm already, like I'm a little too vulnerable, vulnerable right now to really take it on. So I'm going to give myself some time so I can, um, um, you know, just kind of absorb it better because I think right now I'm a little too defensive. Um, but I think I really have to like trust their their feedback, trust their experience, and um, I mean, especially if I'm going to be putting myself out there for more responsibility in the future, um, you know, I really have to take their, what they're saying seriously and, and really try to do what I can to absorb it so that I don't repeat the same thing. Cause frankly, this is the second time I've put myself up. I are basically asked to be considered for a position that I genuinely think that I would excel at. And I, I still think that, you know, if they had been more generous with the interview portion and kind of based the decision more on my, my performance, um, you know, I, I, I know I could do this job and the person who's going to do it is phenomenal. They're going to do a phenomenal job also, but, um, but yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I was the one, yeah, I didn't do as well as I should have. I really fell short in the interview and, um, yeah, it's frustrating. I, I wish so much didn't, I, I wish that there wasn't as much riding on that as, there is and as there was and that there likely will be but uh, that's the way the cracker crumbles right so yeah i'm a little bit of a sad boy today it actually kind of reminds me i think the reason this is kind of wounding for me is because there was a time one time i was giving this performance i was performing at the lost church in san francisco and it was kind of after a weird interval for me. I was dating someone for a while and I think we had broken up and this was like my first show back at the Lost Church. I had done this musical. There's a dude named Alex Wong and another songwriter named Amber Rubarth and they had written a musical together. I don't know if it was fully written or... I don't know. But anyway, it was called The Paper Raincoat and they were giving like a staged reading or slash a demonstration of it. I don't really know what you call it, but they were casting you know, they were casting for like a staged reading of this musical that they had written called The Paper Raincoat. And they needed like a male lead for like a kind of a rock opera character. I don't know, kind of like a Roger from Rent or some shit like that. And I don't know how it came across my desk or something like that. I don't know how, I think maybe my friend Megan Slinkard, who's a great songwriter that people should check out. I think she kind of recommended me for it or something like that. Or maybe even my buddy Jeff Campbell. Anyway, the point is, I did this thing and one of the female cast members who I kind of was playing opposite, we were kind of like the romantic interests in this musical or whatever. Um, you know, I think cause I was not coming from theater. I think 
you know, I was the only one I, that in my sense was of the, of the cast. I was the only one that was coming from like a, even though I have a, sorry, I punched the microphone. Even though I'm, even though I do have a theater background in my childhood, I, I haven't done theater for two decades at this point. And so I was kind of coming from a different angle. I think I just felt different. I think some of the cast members were kind of endeared to me. So anyway, she comes to see my music show and brings a friend of hers. And after the show, they come up to me and the, and they say, her friend in particular, who I, I can't really remember, says, wow, that was so good. It's like you're so close. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, it's just, you're so close and yet there's just, there's something holding you back. And at the time, I was really kind of excited to hear that because I think it also articulated kind of how I experienced myself at that time. Like, I really felt like I was on the cusp of some kind of major creative insight, and yet there's something holding me back. It's like, it sounds simplistic, but it's something like you just have to believe in yourself, man. And I was like, you're right, I just have to believe in myself. And that, you know, at the time, it just, it felt really, I don't know how to say it, it, it really sort of embodied something, how I was feeling at the time. And in some ways, I feel even now, like, that's kind of what my supervisor was saying to me. You know, like you have all the skills. I don't know what it is, but when it comes time for the interview, it was just like there was a different person there, you know, you know, and not like, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a complete train wreck, but it just wasn't what it should have been. And I just think like, fuck man, what do I have to do? What kind of, I mean, how much therapy, how much self reflection, how much, whatever do I have to do to get over this thing, you know, of standing in my own way. It just makes me feel really insecure. It's like, I feel like I go around with this idea of who I am. And yet maybe that's not how people see me at all. You know, maybe I do walk around with this, um, glaring deficit, you know, I don't know. My therapist would fucking hate, hate hearing me say this because this is basically what we've been working on for like the last 10, 12 years or something. This idea that I think that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And in a way, it's like a snake eating its own tail. Because, because I feel that way, that, that, is prob- that is probably exactly what's inhibiting me, this attachment to the idea that there's something wrong with me. Um, and I think may- maybe what people are saying when like, dude, you just have to believe in yourself. It's just letting go of that idea. It's not about fixing anything. You know, it's, it, it, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts, you know? It's your belief that there's something wrong with you that's inhibiting you. There, there's, not that you're perfect, but I, I just mean there's not, you know, what you think is wrong with you is nothing on the order of what you think it is. <clears throat> so, I just wish I could know what, I just wish I knew what to do. You know, what's to be done. I mean, I, I even say this about therapy at times. I say, you know, I ha- you have these insights and then you think, well, what do I do with them? And the only thing I can think to, or the, the, you know, the only prescriptive things, thing to do is to just keep talking about it. But after like 10 years, you just think, Jesus Christ, man. I don't know. I Honestly, for people listening to this who don't go to therapy, I don't know how you do it. I mean, I feel like, I, I feel so up against it most of the time and I and I go to therapy. Dude, I went to therapy twice a week for like three years. <laughs> you know, it's only in the last year that I've gone back to going once a week. 
And even then, dude, I feel like I have so much fucking work to do. The idea, the idea of, there's been so many times in my life where therapy has just given me a perspective that if I didn't have it, I, I could have gone off the rails so quickly. And not because it was like, a, like, you know, not making just one single catastrophic decision. But it's like anything. Like, if you have two be like, dude, do you remember when we were talking about Steve Reich's phase music? Um, I was talking about um, It's Gonna Rain. I, actually, that may even be the title of the episode. I don't remember. But I was talking about Steve Reich's phase music, where he would play a sample, and it would be playing on two machines. And at first, it just sounds like a single sample. But because it's slightly out of time, as it continues playing, it just starts to get out of phase. Right? Um that's kind of how like I feel in my life without the therapist just kind of like overcorrecting a little bit and just kind of getting you back on track. Like DJs do this. Like you see them just kind of touch the record because they're going, Oh, it's just a little bit too fast. I just got to not stop it in its tracks. I just got to kind of slow it down just enough to get it, get it to sync back up with the other record. You know what I mean? That's how I feel, you know? And without that, it's like, you could look up after six months or a year and just be like, whoa, 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 whoa. How did things get so fucked up? You know? I mean, this whole thing with my girlfriend and her, um, and the shooting that happened at her building. I mean, I, me trying to support her with that, I was fucking coming at it from the wrong fucking angle, man. And if I didn't have that other feedback to let me know, "Mm, you're probably not going about it the right way. I mean, I could have gone fucking all in on the fucking wrong thing. And who knows what the effects of it could have been. You know, maybe it's like this job interview too. I mean, it hurts now. It's disappointing today. Well, there's two things. The macro, the bigger picture is, you know, my brother and his wife bought a house recently and the house that they bought is fucking beautiful. But just before that, they were looking at two other houses, which were also phenomenal. And they had one that they really liked and they had their second choice and they didn't get either of them. And that was fucking really disappointing. You know, because as soon as you don't get what you want, you just, you go, fuck, man, well, what do I have now? Now I have nothing. But the house that they got now is fucking even better than those houses. And so you think, yeah, this is disappointing today, but dude, what's your boy's motto? You got to have room in your life for the next best thing. You can't fucking sit and be holding on to this disappointment because there's other things, you know, what you really have is a future shaped hole in your heart, but you just got to make room for the future. You know what I'm saying? That's how I feel with this. So that's the macro, you know, yes, I'm disappointed about this job, but not having this job actually makes room in my life for the thing that I'm, that I may even be better suited toward that might even make me more happy. Um, so that's the macro. And I guess there's supposed to be a micro, but what is the micro? The micro is, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something about it hurts to get feedback now. You know, I got some hurtful emails, not, not, uh, again, not malicious, they're constructive. But when I read the feedback that I get from, you know, the agency director, from the program director, from my, 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 my fellow staff member who happened to be sitting in there and my supervisor, when I read their feedback, that will be wounding to my ego. But, you know, you kind of got to get through that. <sighs> yeah, feedback is hard. Because there's feedback that you get that you know you need to take on. And, and I think that hurts a little bit more. There's been plenty of times where I've been given feedback that I think the person's not, like, especially creatively. You get a lot of feedback from creative people that is fucking bullshit. And if you actually listen to everything that you heard, that you hear, that would take you off the fucking rails. Like, I remember two times. 
have, I don't know if I've talked about auditioning for The Voice, but there was one time I was down in Los Angeles. I was playing at a place called La, uh No, that's in San Diego. I was about to say La Stats. There's a venue in uh, San Diego called La Stats. There used to be a venue uh, in the Los Angeles area in, I think it was in Venice, in Venice Beach called Wits End. And it was like a songwriter's venue. I played there twice. And the first time I played there, um, the sound guy, I, I, you know, I, I showed up early. I was like first on the bill. Like when you play in LA is fucking awful. When you play in LA, you have to do these things where, you know, you basically have to draw to get paid. You have to bring people out to see you. And if you don't bring X number of people, you don't get paid. This was my most, I played at hotel, hotel cafe, like on my last follow up tour for the Matt Nathanson thing. Um, you basically have to draw X number of people and, after you draw, like, let's, I don't know, I, I, I don't remember what it was for Hotel Cafe or Wits End, but let's say it's 25 people, 15 to 25 people. Once you bring X number of people, then you get a percentage of what they pay. But if, if your draw minimum is 15 people and 14 people show up, you don't get anything. You know, but once that 15 person shows up, maybe you get 60% of their, of what they paid to get in or something like that. But, um, but uh, I was like first on at Wits End. I think my I think my set time was like fucking seven o'clock or something like that. Something ridiculously early. And actually, because there's a whole lineup of people throughout the night. And actually, it was pretty cool because this dude David Ryan Harris played after me. He was like John Mayer's guitar player or whatever. But he's a f- fucking phenomenal songwriter. It's just one of those cool things where it's like it, I had nothing to do with it. You just get you know the planets align and you get on a bill with someone fucking really cool. And uh, I show up early like your boy does. And I'm like talking with the sound dude. And I just sort of say to him in passing, I say, yeah, dude, pretty cool doing sound in a place like this. I bet you just, you've heard just about everybody in the area. And he goes, yeah, you know, yeah, I have. I said, yeah, I bet you could give a lot of good feedback too for someone like myself. who's just kind of starting off and he just kind of nods. (laughs) And I think that's the end of the conversation. And then I play my set and afterwards I'm like in the dressing room, like putting my guitar away and he comes in and he goes, hey, man, I got some of that feedback you were looking for. And I was like, uh. And he basically has two index cards, front and back, with super, like, crazy, psycho small handwriting of, like, notes on my performance and, like, what I should be doing and, like, how I should be walking around on stage. And I was like, okay. And uh, that was fucking strange. And then the other time was also in L.A. I, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned I was invited to audition for The Voice. And so you go down to, um, I guess I flew into Burbank. I think it actually, I think the whole thing happened in Burbank. Cause I remember I flew into Burbank. I think I literally walked from the airport to my Airbnb and I could walk to the audition soundstage or whatever from my Airbnb. And I remember doing my voice audition and I remember the first song I played was Ed Sheeran's, um, I was going to say House on the Hill. Castle on the Hill. Is that what it is? Over the castle. Yeah, Castle on the Hill. Anyway, I'm like singing it. And I remember they told me before the audition, or as I'm, a, you know, as I'm sort of setting up, they're like, so first of all, they're fucking awful because you, you like go to this. Well, I have to say a few things. Everybody who worked for The Voice was super fucking friendly. Like, it's not the people that are bad. It's just the environment fucking sucks. And you go to this, like, you know, this was like second or third when the, like when people reach out and invite you to audition for the voice, you kind of get slotted in and like other people have already auditioned at like a hotel or some shit like that. I don't know. But when you show up, it's like, there's just, you know, about a hundred people there and they kind of take you in packs to this like soundstage. 
and like six people. And like, so it's like each one of you goes in one at a time and does your audition and you either get invited into, uh, the second stage, which is like a, a filmed interview or, you know, a Q and a or something like that, or you just walk out and like, that's it. You're done. They send you home. Um, I show up and I'm sort of crowded with like six people who are super LA. Like they all look like they could be models. You know what I mean? And there was actually one girl who had won some kind of like Snapchat contest or something to be there, which the other people recognized. I had fucking no idea who she was. But um, I go in and do my audition and I'm singing Castle on the Hill. And they tell me right before I start, they say, so we got this camera right here. And I think some people were like producers of the show are watching remotely or something. And they're like, just look right into the camera, you know, keep your eyes open and just sing right to the camera like you're singing to the television audience. And I was like, okay. But I just do my thing. I just fucking sing. I close my eyes and I hear myself singing and I'm doing pretty well. And at one point I just kind of look up and I see one of the producers, like this, one of the female producers behind the, the thing. She's like waving her arm. And so like, I'm startled. I just sort of stop. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, I was just going to say, if you could open your eyes and just look at the camera. And I was like, okay. So I just sort of pick up where I left off and I'm like looking at the camera and it was like, okay. And I do my thing and then like I do like a couple songs and then they go, okay, that was great. So actually we'd like to invite you to do one of these, you know, filmed whatever interviews or whatever the fuck it is. And I was like, oh, cool. So I'm moving on to the next thing, I guess. And she goes, the only thing is, you know, you're just, you're really going to want to be more bubbly. You know, I, I just, I know what the producers are looking for and you, you, you know, you sing great and you sound great, but they're just wanting you to be more bubbly. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's good feedback. Thank you. But I already know in my head, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna, like, I'm going to go and answer their questions and just kind of do what I'm going to do. And that's either going to work or not. And like, if I really wanted to be on the voice, I would have taken that criticism on. But because I was just kind of there for the experience, it was like, I feel like this has to work with who I am and what I want to do do or else it's just i'm not i'm not going to do it right so i went home so that's like criticism that you get you just go "Eh, thanks but probably not probably not for me you know (sighs) but it's hard to know it's hard to know i mean i'm trying to think of a situation if i've ever heard anyone get feedback that they don't take that i go ooh, you should probably you should probably listen a little probably listen a little more uh probably probably a little more generous with taking on that criticism yeah, criticism's hard though. It's so easy to get defensive, especially when it's something you care about. You know, especially like I mean, I even feel this at work. You know, working on the crisis lines, like people who volunteer. You know, when we do training with volunteers, sometimes you have to give them feedback on their role plays or their the skills that they're developing, and you can tell it's so wounding because there's something especially about you know crisis line work or any kind of like emotion based thing where it's like. If you're criticizing someone's skills as a crisis line counselor over the phone, they can't help but feel like you're telling them on some level that they're like a bad person, you know, according to their value set, which is they want to be caring, they want to be empathic, they want to give good advice, they want to have insight. And when you tell somebody that they're kind of doing it wrong, they can't help but feel like, oh, fuck, like I'm not those things. Like, oh, I'm not a good listener. I'm not caring. I'm not sensitive. I'm not able to to listen well. Um... But yeah, I don't know. I think you can have those things and still take feedback, right? Like sometimes these things are like driving, which is you sort of show up and you know how to drive automatic. Excuse me, I have to burp. It's like you show up and you know how to drive automatic, but it's like someone's trying to teach you how to drive stick. And of course, it's going to feel fucking foreign at first. But if you just kind of 
adjust to the process and let the process kind of do its thing, you find that it works out pretty well. And actually, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking to my brother who said the only reason he even gave so much thought to presentations because he fucking died a thousand deaths one time where he did it. Uh, he had a horrible presentation. And it's really his story to tell, but just, you know, to go through it briefly, he, when he was in grad school, he had to give a presentation that uh, he didn't even sign himself up for. His um, his uh, supervisor, is that the word for it? His supervisor signed him up for it. What do you do in grad school? What is that person to you? Your, your mentor, your whatever the fuck they are. And uh, so he got signed up for it. And it was supposed to be like a 45 minute presentation or something. It's like longer than a fucking TED talk, right? And I guess my brother had never really given one before. So I think he even showed up with like not enough material or whatever. But he said he was up there and he started to give it. And after like five minutes, he just kind of looked up at the audience and he knew immediately based on their faces that he was fucked. Like he said, I looked up and people actually looked concerned. For me, for themselves, like they were like, oh shit, is this guy really going through with this? Is this really what we have to sit through? And also they're like, oh shit, is this really what this guy's doing Like for him? Like, oh my God, I'm concerned for him. And my brother says, in hindsight, he wishes he had just stopped and said, you know what? I think I may have mis- misread the room. You know, maybe I didn't come as prepared as I should. Why don't I just sort of wrap up here and you can ask any questions, but otherwise I'll, you know, sort of make way for the next person or whatever the fuck. But he said he just sort of bit the bullet and went through it and said it was awful. And to me, it sounded like what you would expect a comedian to feel like if they were just dying on stage, right? Like nothing you're doing is landing. Everybody's checked out. You're trying to do what you can to win them back, but there's just fucking no hope. They, they hate your guts and they can't wait for you to be fucking off the stage. And that's the way it is. Um, but you know, you take your lumps, you lick your wounds for a little bit, but you know, I mean, it sounds dramatic to put it this way. Cause I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's ever been a time where I've been so sufficiently wounded that I gave up on something, you know? Um, and I don't know that there is because I think, you know, whatever, I, you know, resiliency, maybe that's a word that a lot of people like to throw around uh, these days, but I'm a pretty resilient person. I think my brother is also. And, uh, you know, it sucks for like a day or two, but then you fucking just sort of push forward. Um, the experience that I had for me that was kind of similar, thankfully it was much shorter, but I remember I was playing a Bob Dylan tribute show down in Santa Barbara. And, uh, it was through this guy, Steve Key. He hosted these events for this, uh, organization that he ran called songwriters at play. And we were playing at this really cool venue in Santa Barbara called Soho. And it's right on State Street. It's a pretty cool theater. I don't... I played there probably like three or four times. But I think this may have been my... Maybe my first or second time there. But anyway, the whole thing was a fucking nightmare. I have to drive down from the Bay Area to Santa Barbara. Which I think is like a four or five hour drive. I don't know. But um, halfway there, I have to stop in San Luis Obispo because I have to. I'm going to be back in the area like two weeks later, and I'm playing at a place in San Luis Obispo, and I basically want to drop off these show posters that I have for him so they can put them up. It's a whole fucking horror story of when I came back there. But the point is, is I'm stopped in San Luis Obispo, and at some point I stop at this rest area along the highway also, and I go, I take a leak or whatever, and I come back and I realize I locked my fucking keys in the car, in my truck. I locked my fucking keys in the car at this rest stop, and I think motherfucker. So I basically have to call a Papa Lock and this guy shows up. I, I have a Polaroid of him somewhere. He's a very friendly guy. But I have to get my fucking keys popped. You know, I, some guy has to pop my lock on my truck so I can get my keys so I can head down to Santa Barbara. I get down there like 30 minutes before the show starts. 
no no time to sound check or anything like that and i'm uh i think the song i have to play is mr tambourine man and for some reason i feel like i had to play a wilco song but why the fuck did i have to play a wilco song i i could be conflating a couple things here but i started playing mr tambourine man and I do the first verse, or I, you know, it starts with the chorus, then I hit the first verse, and then I do the chorus. And as I'm going into the second verse, it's like I open my mouth, and as I go to speak, I go, I don't fucking have any clue what the words I'm supposed to be saying are. And it's one of those horrible things where it's like, I'm strumming, I'm strumming, and I go, and I got nothing, so I just kind of keep strumming, and it's like... You give yourself like another four measures and you're like, okay, I'll come in on the, on the next four measures. I got nothing. And I just keep strumming. And then it, it's, dude, it's pretty fucking obvious that I don't, don't know what the fucking words are. And this fucking guy in the front row has to start feeding me the lyrics. Like he gives me a line and I go, oh, okay. And I start and I get through that sentence and I'm, dude, I'm, it's like, I'm so flustered. I'm so off the rails. I'm so kind of horror stricken by what's happening it's like I, I just can't get back on the fucking thing right and so it's like every line this guy has to like feed me one and i'm just like oh jesus christ and you know i think at some point i must have found my way right because i think i fucking finished this song and uh god it was just fucking horrible it was one of those things where it's like when, when i i I, had, I was thinking about this recently I think it's because I'm actually thinking about getting rid of most of my music gear. I mean, there's there's just so many things I've accumulated over the years that I just can fucking get rid of. I got too many guitars. I got a fucking electric guitar amp I never use. I can get rid of that. I want to get rid of my fucking record player. I want to get rid of shit. I just want to fucking douche out my whole apartment. But I was just thinking about my different guitars and what guitars I'd played at different times. And I was thinking about this one guitar I have. It's an Epiphone. It's like an Epiphone EO00 or some shit like that. That was like my first guitar. And I, I remember thinking back to my first open mics, you know? And like when I was in Arizona, I played a fair amount. But then there was like a year or two where I fucking didn't do anything. And it was getting back on stage felt like such a fucking Herculean task. And I remember I played this open mic, my first open mic. I don't even know how I mustered the courage to do it. But I went to this place. It was called, I think it was called Beckett's at the time. It had a couple names over the years, but at the time it was called Beckett's and it was on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, California. And they had an open mic. And I must have been pretty early on in the sign up or something like that. But I just remember standing there shaking in my motherfucking boots. And I remember just kind of closing my eyes, like walking up there, just kind of plugging in and just kind of closing my eyes and singing the song. I sang a song of mine called Crooked Books that I wrote and recorded as the Plastic Arts the record probably wasn't even out yet. I think it was like, I think at, around that time I was just doing the recordings and writing the songs for that record, Academy Clones. Um, but I remember just kind of like white knuckling it through that whole fucking thing. And, uh, but around that time, it's like if, if you had asked me to describe what, what my worst nightmare would have been of being on stage, it would have been that moment. Me in the, in the fucking Bob Dylan tribute show in Santa Barbara, spacing the lyrics. That to me was like, your worst case, well, actually, I can, now I can think of a few worse things. But at the time, in terms of, like, how bad can the performance go, it would be something like that. I mean, I could think, like, shitting your pants on stage would be pretty awful. Although I also have a theory about that. I, I think anyone who lives on stage, like any serious professional touring musician, on a long enough timeline, I think they've all shit their pants on stage. 
like what's that there was some show i can't fucking think of what it was but like gwyneth paltrow played played like a country singer someone's gonna have to google this for me but i remember some television show where gwyneth paltrow played like a country singer and she kind of has like a young like opening act who's kind of just starting out and they're kind of confrontational because this is like the new young star that's going to replace Gwyneth Paltrow but they kind of have a come to Jesus kind of moment where they kind of bond and Gwyneth Paltrow is like like kind of giving her some endearing advice of like hey don't do x y and z and do this and at one point Gwyneth Paltrow goes never use like like what the fuck like who wrote this but Gwyneth Paltrow says you know and never use laxatives on tour they're never going to work when you think they will or something like that. They're never going to work when you pl- when you want them to. He's basically insinuating, like, yeah, you're going to be on stage and, out, and you're going to fucking shit your pants. And I was like, oh, that's a weird thing to say. But it's also probably true. Like, there was a thing a while ago when Justin Bieber, like, threw up on stage. And you just think, I'm amazed it doesn't fucking happen more, man. I'm amazed that's it. I'm amazed that's the only thing we have on camera of these people. <clears throat> like, Pat Oswalt, comedian, he has a funny story about shitting his pants on stage. And actually, the actor um, from Transparent, he was kind of he's kind of a victim of the whole Me Too thing. But that actor, I can't remember his name. He was also on um, he was also on uh, I think he's Arrested Development as well. But uh, he had a funny story. I saw him on a panel sometime telling the story about shitting his pants right before he went on stage. Yeah. Anyway, thankfully that's never happened to me yet. Stretching on you fools. Man. You know what, though? Life goes on, folks. It's, you know, it's good to do the podcast, and um, it's disappointing not to get the job. But the truth is, there's some other opportunities out there. Um, There's some other jobs that are, you know, my application's rolling over for a couple things. So who knows? Who knows where your boy's going to land? You know, by this time next week, I could be telling you how I got something much better. Or not. Or not. It's going to be whatever it's going to be, right? <sighs> I will say, I'm looking over to my right. Right now, and in this box, I have this fucking... I made an emotional purchase on, like, Friday. I was, like, kind of bumming. And, uh... Actually, I was thinking about this as I was sitting down to do the to do the podcast. Because, you know, I've always... You know, especially when I started the podcast, I was in this whole, like, you know, use what you have and just fucking start mentality. You know what I'm saying? Like, I have a a regular SM58 microphone that I use this with through a, you know, your basic audio interface into some, whatever software I have, which happens to be Ableton. But, you know, you don't buy shit, you know? And, um, and, uh, I, I've been telling you that I've been doing some, I've been teaching myself synthesis for the last like couple, you know, maybe like couple months or so. And, uh, I've still like looked at a lot of gear, you know, like that's just kind of something that I think all musicians do, you know, you just kind of look at what's out there. And there's a couple things that have caught my eye. Like, Oh, when I finish, uh, I told you I've been working through Centorial, which is this synthesis education curriculum type thing. I'm, you know, a little over halfway now, probably about three quarters of the way through it. And I was starting to think like, Oh, when I finish Centorial, like maybe that'll be a time where I can give myself permission to maybe buy a hardware synthesizer or something. I've been spending a lot of time in massive which is a software synthesizer from Native Instruments. And I, I think I've sort of gathered that it's actually considered kind of a little long in the tooth. It's a little old school. But I fucking really like it. It's, I just, I, it's, it, it just sort of works for me, you know? It just, whatever, whatever, I look at other synthesizers, software synths, and I just go, um, like Serum is a big one. 
not really my thing. Especially when I've worked with Gowan. Like, we've used some software synthesizers, and it's like Serum, we would just fucking kind of laugh at. There's one called um, Omnisphere, which we've used a lot, but, you know, in terms of really teaching yourself synthesis, it may not be the way to go. Um, but yeah, Massive works for me. But anyway, the point of the story is, actually, there's a hardware synthesizer I really like, the Korg Minilog XD. That might be something I buy by myself uh, in a year's time or something. But my emotional purchase. There's a company called Dreadbox, and they make uh, they make a lot of uh, sort of uh, effects units or whatever. But they have a couple since also, and they came out with one recently called the Typhon, and it's a uh, you know monophonic analog synth- synthesizer, two oscillators, filter, kind of the shit you would expect. And I think it was just like YouTube showed me some videos of it or whatever. But it's like the minute I heard this thing, I went, "Holy fucking shit! Like that sounds incredible." And so I watched some videos, and I, I there's this one YouTube channel I like that does some synth reviews, and the guy is just really in-depth, very um, very methodical, just very intelligent, you know? Like, I, I hate these fucking YouTubers who all, like, do, like, the unboxings, and they're just kind of YouTubers, you know? They're kind of, like, they're kind of, like, cute, like, teens, but they're also kind of dweebs, and they're, like, you know they brand themselves and i don't fucking know man like the youtube thing was never really my never really my gig or whatever and it's all kind of superficial you know they happen to have an audience because people like the way they look and so companies like send them shit to review but it's it's really just like an advertisement but this guy really goes in depth and does very methodical reviews of things so i was really kind of impressed with this typhon this this typhon synth from dreadbox but i was also seeing that it's very rare you know, it just came out. It's it's very popular. I think it's probably going to be one of the biggest since of, of the year, probably. But um, you couldn't really find one anywhere. And then I would just happen to be looking at their website, and one of their dealers was a store in San Francisco called Robot Speak. And I basically saw that they had. It seemed to be available on their website, so I just emailed the guy, and I'm like, "Hey, do you do you happen to have this thing?" And he's like, "Yeah, I got one left." And so I basically just Venmoed the guy the money and like picked it up yesterday. But I got to tell you, the minute I got it, I fucking had buyer's remorse, you know, because it's like I'm in this whole phase where it's like I just want things to work. Like, I, I, you know, I happen to have a MIDI controller so I can I can fuck around in massive. And all I have to do is just plug my MIDI controller in and start fucking playing. You get one of these hardware synthesizers and you're like, fuck, I got to have a MIDI cable. I got to fucking run the audio out into my interface and I got to use it. It's like it's just a fucking nightmare. You know what I'm saying? And, I, and I'm not. I, of course, you can do it. But it's like, I don't know, man. I think I'm just going to fucking hold on to it for a while and probably sell it. I mean, if the thing is really as popular as popular as it seems to be, if it really is as hard to get as it seems to be, I can always fucking sell the thing. But I think the point I'm trying to make is it was a totally fucking emotional purchase. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, I got two weeks coming up. I didn't get the job I wanted. I'm going to buy myself something and just kind of make try to make myself feel better. But of course, in the end, it's like I just gave myself a fucking homework assignment. It's like, oh, to really make this thing work, you're going to have to fucking, you're going to have to buy some MIDI cables. You're going to have to buy um, like a, a longer USB cable to power the thing. And you're just like, motherfuck, man. I just want things to work. You know? And I don't, I'm not going to fucking go into this because I'm sure nobody really gives a fuck. But it's like software th- synthesizers are way more powerful than anything you'll ever get in hardware form. So anyway, and it's probably better for the environment, man. This thing's just on a, it's just going to end up in a fucking junkyard at some point, right? Like, isn't e-pollution or, like, e-waste, like, isn't that the fucking 
isn't that really what's going to fucking kill us? Like all our iPhones just ending up in a fucking uh, landmine somewhere. Wait, landmine. Wait, what am I saying? Landfill. That's what I meant. It's going to end up in a landfill. <sighs> anyway, so what's your boy going to do, man? What's your boy going to do for the next two weeks? Nothing. 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 Tra la la. One day we're going camping. Actually, when I was sitting sitting across from my girlfriend at dinner, God bless her heart, she's so fucking bored, man. This shelter in place thing is really hard. She wants to get out and fucking do something, you know? And it's like I have these two weeks off from work, and for me, dude, a vacation for your boy is doing nothing. It's going to bed when I want, it's waking up when I want, It's and it's doing nothing. Literally from moment to moment, what do I want to do? Oh, I want to fuck with my synthesizer. Oh, I want to read. Oh, I want to go to the bathroom. Oh, I want to go for a walk. I want to watch, uh, I want to watch something on Netflix. I was even like, dude, you should find a video game. (laughs) You should find a video game or something to play. You know what I'm saying? Oh man. I was telling my, what what was the game my brother had me playing for a minute? Celeste. You should check that out if you haven't played it. I was even fucking with Hyper Light Drifter recently because our buddy Disaster Piece did the fucking music for that. I sort of forgot, I was, I was, as I've been fucking with synthesizers, and as I was even fucking around with Hyper Light Drifter, I've been thinking a lot about Rich. I've been thinking a lot about Disaster Pieces music. And it was like, I forgot that he, <laughs> we use his music for the fucking podcast. Until I heard it the other day. I was like, oh shit, that's fucking Disaster Piece. Oi, oi, oi. Um, yeah, so I don't know, maybe you got a good video game recommendation. I don't know. You should let me know. I will be looking for something to do with my time. But it's like, yeah, my girlfriend was... Wait, did I finish that story? Oh, I think I was just trying to say my girlfriend was like, oh, do you want to get away for three days? And I was like... Like, I know for her the right answer is yes, I do, but I don't. You know? My girlfriend's like, oh, that last week, and we could, like, get away and take, like, a three-day trip, huh? Right? We could, right? And I'm just, like, smiling and nodding, going, yeah, where would you like to go? But in my head, I'm thinking, I don't want to do shit. You know, find me a new show to watch that I can just fucking watch all day. You wake up and work and I'm just going to stay home and fucking watch The Sopranos or some shit. (sighs) You hear that? That's your boy's neck. (sighs) Like right now, what time is it? Right now it's 7.41 in the PM and it's like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of fucking ready for bed. And I've only been up for eight, eight and a half hours. You know what I did? Actually, you know what? It could be. I fucking never do this. When I went grocery shopping for my girlfriend, we were kind of by the uh, the alcohol, you know, the you know, the the beer and shit. And I got my dude, here's a recommendation. If you are trying to get yourself to stop drinking alcohol, but you're, you're like you tried some NA beers and you're like, "Oh, that's not my fucking shit." Try if you can get a hold of Taller dry hopped beer. NA beer, non-alcoholic beer. This shit tastes like alcohol. I remember the first time I bought it, you know, because I was drinking their um, their regular shit, whatever the Klosthaler NA beer in the green, it's in a green bottle. That shit's delicious, right? Like, there's there's really only a few good non-alcoholic beers. Most of them are fucking garbage. Like, Bud, uh, I guess Budweiser does have an NA beer, right? I can't picture it right now, but they must have one. Miller has one. It's fucking gar- Oh, Sharps is Miller's. It's fucking nonsense. O'Doul's is fucking bullshit swill it's oh it's awful 
But you can find some good NA beer there. St. Pauli Girl NA beer is fucking delicious. Bex has a fucking great non-alcoholic beer. Klosthaler is great. And then fucking Klosthaler dry hopped. The first time I bought that shit, I was like, oh, well, this looks good. Let's try a new NA beer. I took a sip. I spat it out because I was like, that's definitely fucking beer. Like it, the problem with any beer is it tastes like beer, but it's missing a little, right? It's missing a little, that little alcohol burn. You know what I'm saying? That little wonder stuff. And it's like, I took a sip of this dry hop and cause it has that hop, it has that hoppy bite. It, you're convinced it's alcohol. And I'm not saying if you drink beer regularly that you're going to be convinced, but if you haven't had alcohol in a while and you have this fucking Klosthaler dry hop shit, dude, it's fucking delicious. Um, so yeah, I was, I was buying that. That's a commercial over. We do need sponsors for the fucking podcast, by the way. Does anybody fuck, is anyone willing to pay for advertisements if you only have a couple hundred listeners for your podcast? <clears throat> Probably not. I think, I think basically podcast advertisers do it by thousand i think it's you know and it's not a lot when you when you just have like a thousand it's not a lot but i think they basically pay you based on how many thousands of listeners you have um but uh what am i saying oh so we're by the fucking beer and i see this other girl who's just buying sodas like they have their kind of specialty sodas you know all the fucking cream sodas and ginger ales and root beers and shit that you fucking don't know anything about and you wonder how the fuck does that company stay in business it's such a niche, niche. It's such a niche market. You're like, who the fuck is making root beer, right? Um, but she got some fucking orange sodas, and I went, dude, that's what I'm fucking getting myself. So I got like two bottled orange sodas, and I had one about an hour ago, and I'm wondering, man, maybe I'm having that sugar crash. Like you get that real sugar drink, you know? I mean, I'm sure there's real sugar in like, you know, I don't know. Um, Pepsi or something but there's like that real cane sugar in some of those bottled drinks like you get that bottled coke and it just has that real sugar I think you get that fucking real sugar high and then you just fucking crash so right now I'm wondering wondering if I'm coming down from like a I'm having a fucking orange soda crash man well dude I gotta be honest with you I sat down for this episode and I was like you probably don't have a lot to talk about, boy, but we're doing pretty well. We're about to cross the hour mark here, and then technically I'm fucking home free. I'm trying to think if there's really anything else I should talk about before we bounce. Um, talked about the job interview. Talked about how I spent my day. And that's, um, those are pretty much the broad strokes. I don't really know that there's anything else that needs to get talked about. I guess I, the only thing I'm thinking about now is even just sort of going over my girl. You know, it's kind of a funny moment with my girlfriend. I, you know, she knows this whole interview thing happened, and I sort of show up to her place yesterday after giving my presentation, and you know, I'm kind of talking about. I basically had to stop by work, and I had to sign some paperwork, and I had not been back into the office for like five months, and the only person on site literally the only person on site was the one staff member who had sat in on my interview and it was just like ugh. you know i mean a great person but it's like why did i have to see the one person who one is 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 really the only staff member who saw me fucking you know eat dicks for my fucking job interview and it was like uh so they were there but then i was just kind of like lamenting with my girlfriend about how fucking sad i was about this job interview and 
my girlfriend does this thing, and I know I, it's just I know her well enough that when she speaks and her lip starts to do a specific thing, I know that she's about to cry. And as she's talking, she's talking about my job interview. She's talking about her work experience. And I see her lips start quivering. And I'm like, babe, are you okay? She's like, yeah. And I was like, you look like you're about to cry. And the minute I say that, she just fucking starts crying. And uh, I mean, there was just, there was some ways in which my interview experience was bringing up some of her frustrations at work. But, um, but uh, where am I going with this? Oh, I think I was just saying... You know, she was after she sort of talked through. Sorry, I keep punching the mic, man. That's like a new thing for me. As she was talking through her feelings, and we kind of got to the end of it, and she was just saying, "I'm sorry. It's just I feel like the last couple weeks have been difficult." I I feel that way too. I don't know what happened, but the last few weeks, it's like I feel like I'm back in this place where shelter in place is starting all over again. I can't focus on shit. It's hard for me to focus on anything for more than like fifteen or twenty minutes at a time. And especially as I've like had to prepare for the job interview, for this final presentation, for this final essay I had to write. And on top of that, there's this huge disappointment like weighing on me. It has taken like every fiber of my being to like focus on shit, you know, and to just like get things done. And I don't know what the fuck's going on, but I know it's happening to all of us. I mean, when I talk to people on the lines, people are reporting this. When I talk to my peers, people are reporting this. And I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's really anything external to point to where this is all coming from, but I, I just feel collectively a lot of us have sort of regressed to this place where things are just fucking hard all over again. You know, the shelter in place was hard at first for like the first month, and then I feel like we all kind of found our rhythm, and then for some reason we all woke up like two or three weeks ago, and we're just like, man, fuck, this shit sucks. You know? So, yeah, I don't know. I hate to end on that super depressing note, but um, I'm just eager to see what the next two weeks look like. You know, two weeks of vacation. I have no fucking idea how I'm going to spend my time. Um, You know, my girlfriend was asking me what I'm going to do, and I'm just like, it's so easy for me to start to think of things, like give myself a project, like, oh, I'm going to fucking read the fucking The Count of Monte Cristo, (laughs) or um, I'm going to write a fucking record, or, you know, like, I just give myself projects, but it's like, I'm, I'm trying to get to a place where I, I let myself do nothing. What are you going to do for your break? Nothing. I literally want to do nothing, and that's what I'm going to fucking do. I'm going to end this podcast now. I have no fucking clue what I'm going to do afterwards, but you know what? It should be nothing. I'm going to fucking do nothing. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Maybe I should just pick one of those and just hit that note from now on. Like maybe I should just say Apple Podcasts. Maybe you just maybe I just maybe I should just instead of trying to get people to go to where they want, I just need to get everybody into one fucking place. You know what I'm saying? So you let me know. Where the fuck do you listen to podcasts? I'll just pick that one. It's a coin toss. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I'm gonna narrow that shit down. Um so yes, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. Uh, take a minute to rate and review us. Maybe it should be Apple Podcasts, because that's where you fucking rate and review shit, right? You can't do that on Spotify. Find us on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, give us a five-star review, and do me a favor, take a couple seconds and write a couple words about what you like about this podcast. That really does make a difference when people are searching around. They read a couple reviews and they go, oh, okay, well, that's fucking pretty cool. I'll fucking check that out. And then they do, and they fucking fall in love with the fucking podcast like you do. Man, 
Um, so let's do that. Rate and review the podcast. If you can think of one person in your life who you think would like it, just send them your favorite episode and say, hey, man, this is my shit. Let it be your shit, too. This will be our shit together. And uh, I feel like there's one other thing I normally tell you. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thanks for tuning in each week. And, um, you know, I hope you find ways to take care of yourself this week, next week. But let's just fucking try to get over this hump that I think we're all going through. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.